You're listening to the Charge Forward audio blog by Chargebacks 911, bringing you the latest in payments and fraud. To learn more about how Chargebacks 911 can help you reduce chargebacks and recover revenue lost to fraud, visit us online at chargebacks911.com. This episode is a replay of a webinar entitled Understanding Account Takeover Fraud, featuring experts from Chargebacks 911 and SpyCloud. Okay, it looks like we got a pretty full house and that makes me really happy because I'm really excited about the webinar we have today. Um, again, I just want to thank you for taking your time out of your day. I, know, I hope everybody's um, you know, sheltering in place and, and uh, also being productive and um, getting lots of work done. Uh, my name is Jared Wright. I'm the marketing director here at Chargebacks 911. Um, for those of you unfamiliar with Chargebacks 911, we essentially help merchants by identifying and preventing chargebacks before they happen and then managing the disputes for chargebacks that we were unable to prevent. Um, also presenting today is Nate Foss and Patty Dillon of SpyCloud. Nate and Patty are both members of the SpyCloud team. Uh, Nate is the sales development and Patty is the anti-fraud network relationship manager. Um, I'm really excited to have them join us today because I think that they are uh, two great experts to talk on uh, this topic today. And um, I'm, I'm real excited to hear what they have to say. Um, Nate, do you want to take just a moment to tell us a little bit about what Spy, SpyCloud does? Sure, yeah, thanks, thanks, Jared. Um, yeah, SpyCloud, we're leaders in breach discovery and account takeover prevention. So we enable enterprises to protect their consumers from account takeover by proactively identifying passwords that have been exposed to cyber criminals in third-party data breaches. Great, okay. And then um, before I get started here, we're gonna get started in just a second. I just wanted to go over how this webinar is gonna be structured. Um, the first part of the webinar will be a short presentation. Um, you know, I'll speak for a little bit and then um, um, both uh, Nate and Patty are gonna talk on um, specifically um, some of the things that they've seen with account takeover fraud. Um, this portion of the webinar will be fairly visual, so it's important that if possible, you close other windows and give us your attention for that part. Uh, the second portion of the webinar will be a Q&A where we answer many of the questions that were submitted before the webinar. This portion will be less visual, so it's okay if you wanna just kinda listen to that part. Um, please also feel free to submit any questions that you have during the webinar. We promise to answer any questions submitted, if not live, then by email after the webinar. Uh, also, this webinar, uh, people always ask, it will be available for replay starting tomorrow. Uh, we will try to get it out to you as soon as possible. Not all of the Q&A portion will necessarily be included in that recording, however, so we encourage you to stay with us today to get the maximum value out of this event. Uh, lastly, this and other webinars will eventually be released in audio form on our podcast. Um, if you like podcasts, just search for Charge Forward, all one word, with Chargebacks 911, however you listen to podcasts, and you should um, be able to listen to some of our past webinars, among other things. Okay, and if you've been to another webinar that I've um, sort of uh, conducted, uh, you know that I like to begin these with a dumb question. And for these, I really do try to think of a question that I have that I might sort of otherwise be afraid to ask. Um, and these questions may just be something that I wanna know, but I'm also hoping that some attendees might be wondering the same thing and might get some value out of uh, me sort of embarrassing myself with a dumb question. Um, so Patty, do you mind? I, I got kind of a dumb question. Is it okay if I ask it? Sure. 
Okay. The, the question I have is actually pretty simple today. Um, it, it actually, I just had it the other day because I was looking at the list of companies that um, had registered for this webinar. And um, when I looked at the, you know, I was kind of surprised because it was a very diverse list. Up until now, I sort of thought of account takeover fraud as being a fairly niche liability, something that, you know, video game companies or mega retailers like Amazon needed to worry about, but something that wasn't, you know, the average merchant really, really didn't need to be too concerned about it. But I'm guessing based on, you know, the, the uh, attendees to today's webinar that I'm wrong about that and um, that I'm probably thinking maybe too narrowly about the different types of account takeover fraud and some of the different liabilities that merchants have. So, so I guess that's my basic question in a nutshell. You know, how widespread is, it, is account takeover fraud? Is it something that the average merchant needs to worry about? Um, and and why, was I, why was I so wrong about my uh, initial assessment? Well, I, I think that a lot of people think of account takeover as um, just focused on the large, <clears throat> excuse me, large retailers. Um, and because they're targeted for a lot of the merchandise they have on their uh, platforms. But in reality, um, because a smaller or medium-sized retailer may not have all the resources to keep their security measures up to date, um, they can become um, a big target for uh, fraudsters. So it's really not isolated to any specific um, you know, size of a, an e-commerce platform. Or, I mean, there's account takeovers in a lot of areas uh, besides uh, e-commerce. This is our focus for today, but, um, you know, there's there's banking, ATO, there's um, for just about anything, e email uh, accounts, uh, so much more. And we're going to get into a lot of that, sort of how that occurs and um, some of the other markets, too. I think Nate has that queued up. That's 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 really interesting. So 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 when when you're talking about um, small businesses, you know, once once uh, you know th they realize that there's an opportunity there, it's sort of it's sort of like you you kind of have to eradicate it at that point, right? It's a little bit maybe like an infestation. Is that a right way to think about it, or am I or am I being too? Uh, uh, well, yeah, that is, that's what you want to hope to do because fraud trends change so, so frequently. Uh, it's something that you constantly have to be monitoring for. Um, and especially, and this is something that we'll get into too, but with the COVID-19, it really has affected um, the trends uh, that are happening now. And, and so they're, Really, the fraudsters are taking such advantage of this. Uh, so being able to monitor s specific things um, on your platform and getting a sort of a benchmark of uh, where your average activities and, and velocities are is a really good step uh, to be able to, to draw from if things um, change. That's great. That's real interesting. Okay, so I'm going to start here. I'm going to kind of go through an elevator. It's not really an elevator pitch because I'm not selling you anything, but it's an idea that I've talked about a lot before. So I apologize if you've been to another webinar. And I'm going to go through it as uh, as quickly as I can. Um, but basically, the idea is that chargeback management itself is fairly simple. When you talk about sort of the process of putting together a case and successfully disputing a case, or you know. Um, um, reviewing chargebacks, understanding why they're happening, and addressing them at their source. Um, but the but the main problem is understanding the source of your chargebacks. That's the thing that's hard. 
Um, what we find over and over again is that when merchants struggle with chargeback management, um, their real struggle is effectively identifying the source. And I'm gonna talk about that. I'm gonna break it down as quickly as I can because I've talked about it kind of a lot before. Um, but I think it's foundational to the concept to understand before we can talk about the different liabilities like account takeover fraud um, and, and its impact specifically on chargeback management. So, so just, just real quick, um, for the most part, we usually find it very useful to divide chargebacks into three buckets. Um, chargebacks caused by criminal fraud, so typically third-party fraud, stolen credit cards. Uh, chargebacks caused by friendly fraud, um, so that's your consumers you know, misrepresenting um, the, um, their case for a dispute. And then merchant errors, so that's things that you as a merchant do that um, you know made life difficult for yourself. So, so, so you could have done something better to prevent the chargeback to begin with. Um, and if we look at the, the visa reason codes, and just, just as an aside, just if this is the first time that you've seen this, um, if you're completely new to chargebacks, uh, reason codes are assigned by the issuing bank um, when they initiate a chargeback on behalf of a customer. And they're meant to indicate the, the reason that the chargeback was filed. Um, but when Visa recently came out with the reason codes, they kind of had them very organized and, and it, was, it was very useful to, to sort of assess why the chargeback happened. And in a perfect world, I mean, this is sort of what you would get. So everything in the, the fraud category, you could sort of assume was third-party fraud. Um, and then everything in the consumer dispute category was either something that you did, right? You either, you either didn't ship the product, right? Or uh, the consumer's misrepresenting the situation and they're committing a type of friendly fraud, either knowingly or unknowingly. Um, and, so, and so it's sort of, you know, it, if, if reason codes worked, you'd have a fairly simple um, um, task ahead to, to, to deal with your chargebacks. Um, but the reality is that reason codes are often misleading. They represent the best estimate by the agent at the issuing bank based on what they're told by their consumer. But the uh, agent may misinterpret the, what the consumer is saying, and then the consumer may be rep misrepresenting or not have all of the information when they're uh, talking to the agent. Um, so what happens is you end up fighting legitimate chargebacks and then not fighting instances of friendly fraud. Um, this will result in a low net win rate. And um, if you use chargebacks to inform the machine learning on your fraud filter, you'll be feeding it sort of bad data, which may increase false positives. Um, and, um, you, you know, it'll, it'll, you'll have, uh, you'll miss out on, on good transactions. This is why, I mean, this idea is why as a business we've prioritized uh, source identification as a major focus of our solution. And it's really what, at the end of the day, sort of sets Chargeback 911 apart. Um, but whether or not you use Chargeback 911, your goal as a merchant when, you, when you're thinking about chargeback management is to sort of address each of these buckets individually. So regardless of what the reason code is, um, if you get a handle on criminal frauds, you, so you have um, you know, the fraud filters in place and you have a manual review process that's effective at minimizing the, the amount of criminal fraud that, that is coming through your website. Um, and, and also you um, identify and uh, rectify all of sort of the operational issues that may be contributing to chargebacks. So that's, you know, late shipments, uh, improper communication, uh, misleading uh, sales language. There's a whole bunch of categories. I think there's 106 things that we look at when we compile a report, when we bring a client on. Um, but, but basically what we're trying to do is we're trying to help you figure out all of the things, all of the areas where um, you're sort of con contributing to your chargeback liability by, by making mistakes. 
Um, and then if you do that, in a perfect world, if, if you correct both of these issues, then the only thing you have left to contend with are chargebacks that are um, friendly fraud of a whole different variety. Um, and with those, those are the high win chargebacks. So if you, if you uh, represent those chargebacks back to um, the issuing bank, then, then you'll have a, a high, high chance of reversing that initial dispute and recouping um, the revenue lost. Um, so, so this is sort of, you know, from a, from a 10,000 foot view, this is sort of what our core philosophy is. And this is what um, any chargeback management system should ultimately look like. Um, you know, addressing these three buckets effectively and then disputing whatever's left over. Um, but account takeover fraud provides a unique challenge in many ways um, to, to this sort of orderly way of thinking about it. And, you know, normally this is where the slide ends and I start talking about something else, but I think that it's important in this instance to just realize that account takeover fraud kind of blows this up, right? Account takeover fraud is a, is a real fly in the ointment. Um, from us as an operation, from an operational standpoint, and I'm sure within your business. And the, and the main reason for that is um, because account takeover often has a very different footprint than other types of criminal fraud. So, so it may act like a duck and quack like a duck, but it still may be a type of fraud. Um, and so for our internal processes, at least in the early stages of our business, account takeover fraud was a real challenge. And it was something that, that if it wasn't dealt with, it was, <clears throat> it was difficult for our processes to work effectively. Um, we've gotten a little better at identifying it, um, but we still, it's still one of those things that even before you get into traditional credit card fraud, um, you know, making sure that you don't have an account takeover fraud liability because it's 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 just very difficult to diagnose if you're not effectively looking for it, and um, you know it can it can sometimes it can appear like regular criminal fraud, sometimes it can appear um, you know like friendly fraud, and and you'll get a lot of uh, false positives, and it'll be kind of difficult to untangle all of those chargeback sources, and, and you'll have uh, negative results on all of your chargeback management because. You have this, this, you know, even if it's a small subset of the total chargebacks that you're receiving, um, it can create havoc and create sort of a cascade of um, um, problems that that make all of your chargeback management uh, more difficult to process. Um, so that's really why it's essential that if you have it, that you you figure out how to take care of it. And why I'm super excited to have SpyCloud here um, and my old friend uh, Nate Foss to kind of kind of talk to us about. Um, account takeover fraud and provide some great information. So I'm, I'm going to stop talking now. I'm going to turn it over to these guys. Um, and um, away you go. Here, Nate, I will give you a mouse control. Great. Thanks. All right. You should be good to go. Um, okay, cool. I think we're going to start off with Patty, actually. And thank you so much, Jared, for, for kicking this off. Yeah, thank you so much for coordinating it. So I'm Patty Dillon, and just to give you a little bit of background, um, I absolutely have a passion for fraud prevention. And although I'm relatively new to spy fraud, I've been in the industry for uh, close to 20 years. And my experience includes things like uh, age and identity, fraud analytics, uh, payments, chargebacks, and the use of compromised credentials. Um, and I'd sort of like to kick this off by um, starting to level set uh, defining account takeovers and how they result in chargebacks. So an account takeover is basically very common. Um, 
and is a direct result of all the past and current uh, data breaches, phishing attacks, and data leaks that are out there. <clears throat> Excuse me, and it's really a perfect storm between all that exposed user credential information and poor password hygiene, which Nate will get into um, in, in a bit here too. Um, and, and as mentioned before, the ATOs are not exclusive to large uh, e-commerce sites. Um, everybody's susceptible to these. Uh, you know, criminals are using the stolen credentials to gain unauthorized, illegitimate access to victim accounts. And uh, when the customer's using those, those reused passwords, they're becoming easy targets for criminals to place fraudulent orders on your platforms. So reusing those passwords can open the floodgates to chargeback disputes. Um, we actually did a paper um, or, and released it last month on e-commerce uh, account takeover um, losses um, <clears throat> supporting that information. Uh, but we're expecting between 12 billion and 13 billion dollars in in just e-commerce account takeovers. And the paper that we put out last month supports it by as the first half of uh, the year in 2019 un unraveled, uh, it shows data breach exposures of 54%. So it's really high and it does support this increase that's coming our way. So Nate, can you give us some uh, insight into password reuse? Sure, thanks, thanks Patty. Uh, so Patty and I are both somewhat new to SpyCloud and, you know, to be honest, when I started at SpyCloud, I really had to come face to face with how few passwords I was actually using. I did a little hygiene, was, was playing through my Google password uh, manager, and not only did I notice that I had 130 accounts with passwords saved, um, but that I fell into the group of uh, habitual password reusers. And so really, you know, what, what we found at SpyCloud is on one end of the spectrum, you have people who reuse passwords everywhere. Um, on the other end, you have password, you know, uh, users who use a password manager and, uh, you know, use a unique password for every one of their accounts. Uh, but in the middle, you have, you know, a large group that has a block of passwords and amongst those, they use variations for their accounts. So you obviously fall somewhere, you know, on that spectrum. But we've done studies over it uh, and we show that um, actually the group of 55 and older have 12 passwords that they reuse over and over, where millennials and Gen Zers fall somewhere in the eight to five passwords that they use. And if you think about how many you're using or how many your family is using or the shared passwords that you have amongst your family, uh, you know, the fact is people are reusing passwords a lot. And, um, you know, those people are buying from you, you know, to be quite honest. So when, when a criminal gets a hold of your password to make a fraudulent purchase on your website, at the end of the day, you as the merchant, uh, you bear the liability, you bear the burden for that expense. And that's what we're here to talk about today. So. Uh, a little bit more data in, in 2019, the Verizon breach data report, um, they detailed that the use of weak and stolen passwords, uh, stolen credentials ranked as the most common hacking tactic for the third year in a row. Uh, and since 2017, over 80% of hacking related breaches used stolen or weak passwords. So as an example, you know, let's say you're 
your email and password were exposed and made available to criminals through a fantasy football site that was breached. Uh, bad actors will try your email and password combinations and over a hundred different variations of that password on other common sites. This is, a, this is a known account takeover tactic. They'll also try and gain access to your email account. And once they've done that, they can now identify all the different accounts that you, that you use, your banking, your 401k, your travel and hospitality, your favorite retailers, your cell phone provider, et cetera. And it, furthermore, this gives that bad actor a chance to delete security emails or reroute them, intercept uh, two-factor or multi-factor responses, any security emails that you know could be put in place. So, uh, you know, long story short, even though your site may not have been breached uh, due to password reuse, there still is risk of account takeover. Uh, so let me kick it back over. Let's talk about some of the attack services. Uh, I'm sorry, surfaces uh, that fraudsters commonly use. Yeah, thanks, Nate. So um, the surfaces that are most susceptible to ATO attacks are, are and are also the most critical areas to monitor to prevent chargebacks are during account creation, login, and post-account creation. So compromised credentials are truly at the core of account takeovers. With an uptick in fraud, like we were talking about before, and the COVID-19 pandemic, it's you know giving the the bad actors a an opportunity to really take advantage of this. So this may be the time to really take a look at the new normal in your fraud patterns. Uh, it might be that you're making it really easy to add and modify the data that you need um, to to monitor uh, new fraud patterns. And this will give you new insights to new or uncommon uh, customer behaviors. This may also lead to you uh, readjusting or recalibrating the configurations of your business rules based upon this new information, or if you're using machine learning, uh, adjust those uh, settings. And you know, I know you don't wanna hear this, but it may be necessary to increase or more closely monitor those manual order reviews to get um, a handle on the new fraud trends that may be out there. And that'll help you distinguish between what's a good uh, or high risk order that uh, what they look like now. So let's talk a little bit about uh, familiar scenarios of e-commerce um, e account takeover and that might include something called Frankenfrog. Uh, so here's some examples of what you might see in uh, an account takeover um, and things to watch for. So cyber criminals will rotate uh, and mask through an IP proxy uh, to make it appear like that's coming like an hour from the billing address, but it's really coming from China or Taiwan or um, someplace other than an hour away from the billing address. Uh, whether the criminals are using credential stuffing techniques or targeting a small number of high profile accounts, there will be an attempt to use a credit card on file in the account to place an order. And sometimes uh, they can get through with those, but other times if they're unable to use that credit card, they use a technique called Frankenfrog. 
and that's where unrelated individuals uh, credit card information and billing addresses are entered into the account this is also a form of synthetic identity since more than one user's information um, is placed into the account once the order is placed if the order contains tangible goods, either um, a shipping address will be added uh, and directed to the criminal's location, or it'll be rerouted uh, in, when the shipping or the shipment is in route uh, to that criminal's address. Whether the order is tangible or digital, the process is going to repeat until you identify it and stop it. Um, a chargeback is going to be issued, and the merchant is unlikely to win these chargebacks. Uh, no matter how compelling the evidence is. So I'm gonna kick it back over to you, Nate. Um, can you help us with some key points to identify ATOs? Sure, thanks, Patty. Um, so obviously, and we, we talked to a lot of merchants, it's, um, it's easy to, uh, you know, a lot of merchants will tell us that it's difficult to identify account takeover. Uh, how do you track it? Um, especially if you don't have an account takeover solution in place. It can be very cumbersome, very manually time intensive and tedious. Um, as Patty mentioned with the three attack vectors, here's a couple things that, you know, just to drill down, you would probably want to proactively monitor. Uh, the three that she said, the first one, account creation. Uh, if you know your numbers, it look for any spikes in the data, large increases in account creations, as she mentioned, masked or rotating IPs, uh, at the at the point of login, the number of login attempts, uh, you know, and in both of these, and really all three, you would also want to leverage uh, breach data to see if their credentials have been exposed. And the, the last one is is account modification. Um, so this is this is a huge telltale. Obviously, if if your consumer has their their email and password, their login information available and in the hands of criminals and then you start seeing account changes, even if they're trickling in over a week or two, and you see things like updated emails, updated credit cards, the kind of franken fraud. Uh, you see shipping and billing, uh, you know that you know these are some, some, some KPIs just, or some risk indicators that you would wanna look at that could be telltale signs for account takeover. Um, you know, and the, the normal things, do these things align with their purchasing behavior, the time of day, you know, your, your normal risk KPIs. As a good friend of mine in the industry and e-commerce fraud prevention would say, she she says, you know, data, data, data. The more that you know about your business, the more you know about your fraudster, your client, et cetera, then, you know, these key indicators will come more into play. Um, but we believe at SpyCloud that a, a great, um, you know, quiver, uh, arrow in the quiver is to have um, breach data to know if the criminals have your customers' uh, account credentials. Um, so I think we uh, have time to pose a quick question. I believe this is a, a poll question and I, uh, I might defer to Jared to see if this uh, is an actionable one, but you know, just to pose this question for you guys, how, how do merchants, or if you're not a merchant, how do you identify account takeovers? Jared, is this actionable or should I be doing some Jeopardy music aloud? So think amongst yourself, but let's just kind of keep Yeah, keep sorry about that. On. No, it's, it's not actionable. I apologize, guys. We're all working from home. Uh, so we're, so if you could uh, bear with us while we work through some technical difficulties. Um, no, we, we did not load this this poll ultimately. So 
No worries, but just just th th thanks, Jared. I mean, just just kind of think to yourself, you know, how do you as an organization, how do you currently track account takeovers? Um, you know, and are you tracking things on a rolling scale, month over month, um, et cetera, to, to get a, a grasp on if this is something that you should be looking at in more detail? Um, so I think that's it from our side, and I think we have some questions, so I'll kick back over to Jared to, to help um, kind of moderate that. Yeah, guys, and, and and I just had just for my own clarification, um, the Franken fraud. Tell me if I tell me if I have this correct. The basic idea is um, that they they take over a, a, a customer's an account and then they use a stolen credit card, but through that customer's account, so that you know, in in order to try to sort of bypass maybe some um, fraud filters or some fraud detection mechanisms that would be in place if they had come in and created a brand new account or had tried to check out as a guest or something like that. Do I, do I have that as the franking fraud sort of, it's sort of a hybrid, it's account takeover fraud plus traditional sort of third party fraud. Is it, am, I, am I thinking about that right? Yeah, that's very well said, uh, Nate. And and essentially, they're um, if they can't get through one way, they'll try another. Um, and so the, the use of uh, someone else's stolen credit cards can be very, um, if you're a fraud analyst and trying to figure out how this chargeback happened uh, and everything is completely unrelated, it's very confusing unless you understand this type of fraud. So um, what you described is, is really, was really well done. Yeah, and that's—I mean—that's—that's that's one of those things where it, it becomes complicated, and you, you could easily see how you could make the wrong judgment call. You know, you may have a very good customer that you know makes purchases regularly. Very lifetime value of a customer is very high. Um, definitely somebody that you want to maintain a relationship with, but you inadvertently cancel their account, thinking that they've—you know—all of a sudden turned into somebody that's that's committing criminal fraud. Um, you know, it it just it just illustrates the challenge, and it really makes it seem like um, like anybody that that has an e-commerce website should probably have at least some some eye on this because if it's not a problem now, it may it may be in the future. Right. Yeah. Well put. You got it. And there's probably some movie purists out there who are correcting us in their minds, saying that it should be Franken Fraud's monster. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. Actually, the name of the scientist. <laughs> Okay. Um, okay. So one of the questions that came in was a real, you know, um, um, a real sort of general question. Um, they were asking, um, how do they mitigate ATO before it even starts? Like, what what are some steps they can do to protect their business before it, before they even get any of it? So, Patty, I can jump in. Um, so what we would recommend is obviously getting. You know, if you have the ability to get breach data um, fast, the latency of the data that you get. So, you know, in a normal breach timeline, uh, you'll see that when a website gets breached, the fraudsters will keep that data in a close, tight-knit community, and they'll do targeted attacks on all the high-value accounts, and they'll siphon points, do all the you know nefarious things that they can before they do a data dump and put them on these. Uh, forums that are read, readily available to dark web scanners and the like. Um, so one of the, you know, the, the secret sauces of SpyCloud is that because we have these sec security researchers who've spent years creating these, um, you know, these monikers and these, these uh, uh, criminal identities, we get the data days after a company is breached. And so, uh, you know, with that data, we'll be able to notify not only the company sometimes, but you'll be able to use that data quickly and before the criminals have chance to get into these accounts and you know do these nefarious things. 
That's great. Um, Okay, great. If I, could just, if I could just add to that too, is, um, you know, with the knowledge of these uh, compromised credentials, you know, it's, it makes it easier to um, put a step up or maybe a, a little bit different flow to a specific order and a specific account where you might want to um, add in 3DS um, or 3D Secure uh, 2 now. Um, and that's basically the issuing bank is verifying the cardholder's information. That's helpful. Um, you know, it might be that you wanna do a two-factor authentication, um, the PSD2, um, that's uh, a requirement over in Europe anyways. Um, and then just for some basic things, like maybe you wanna use a password reset or notify that customer. Or maybe you simply want to just watch the customer's behavior. Um, if it changes, you may want to add like a dynamic questions, um, force re-entry of a CVV or a credit card information. You just want to make sure that that person is the actual account holder, and those might give you more confidence. Well, that's great. And and I and I think the the question I think we had talked about um, in an earlier conversation about this question I I think the key may be in a lot of cases um, you know mitigating ATO um, before it starts but but more importantly before any transaction happens right so maybe maybe after the breach but before the transaction is still is still a pretty big win um, from from the merchant standpoint so um, oh, yeah. so there's there's some there's some opportunity there too. Um, okay, this next uh, attendee was asking, um, with data breaches occurring every day, what steps can one take to mitigate the success of credential stuffing specifically, um, aside from using a third-party solution? Sure, I'll, I'll, I'll take that one. Um, so I, I think one of the first things, and I actually mentioned this with your, uh, your, your dumb question, um, was to make sure that you can benchmark your average um, volume of, of traffic and the activities that happen. Um, that's really step one. And then start building your key risk indicators um, to identify what you want to watch for, what you want to monitor. So it might be that you want to monitor for, um, and, and Nate already mentioned this, but account creation spikes or the spikes in login attempts. Um, account modifications, irregular times or velocities of um, uh, account creations or activities, um, purchasing behavioral changes. And some of the other things that you know you can you can encourage are you know good password hygiene, um, if, if when needed, the forcing of a CVV or credit card re-entry. Uh, and then two really simple things are email validation and phone validation. So those are just some things without third parties that that you can um, you can help your platform, and that's certainly not all inclusive, but would be helpful. And just just to dovetail on that, um, you know, one thing that was was brought to my attention was, uh, you know, when if you do uh, notify your consumers, your customer, your you know your most loyal customers that they're um, their credentials have been exposed. You can notify them. You know, there's there's obviously a myriad of different um, you know templates and language that you can put in there to remind them. Hey, you know, we think your account has been breached. Um, you know, any other password that is shared 
uh, with this password on other accounts, it would probably be a good idea to, to update and change that password too, because we know that the criminals have this email and password combination in their hands, you know, so. Um, and that, that, could, that could help against, um, you know, just, just the, your different peers in the industry. Okay. All right. Okay, this next person asked about chargeback prevention during pandemics or other periods of economic hardship. And this is a, I know it's something that every, kind of on top of everybody's mind, and so I left it in. Um, it's not super relevant to, to today's conversation, um, but I did want to point them to, if you go to our website, um, just our homepage, there's a little, uh, there should be a little pop-up window. If it doesn't happen, then down at the footer, there's a link. But we have uh, a pretty good article that we wrote about, um, um, you know, some steps that we're recommending that our customers and other merchants take. And then we um, recorded a webinar, I think a week ago, or um, yeah, I think it was just, just over a week ago. Um, and that, that webinar is available for replay. And um, our COO kind of talked about this a lot. Um, and, and really, there isn't a, a clear answer. So um, what I recommend is that you read the article and then you watch the webinar because it's, it's kind, of, kind of two different angles. Um, it's two different sort of um, ideas about this problem. So in the one, um, I think in the article, we, we, the, the article took a very, uh, you know, chargeback preventing stance, right? So it was very pro-refund. It was, um, you know, um, being as lenient as, as you could. And I think in the webinar, um, our analysis was a little bit more um, towards defending your um, terms of service, right? So, so people shouldn't be able to get something for free if uh, if you delivered a good or a service, and and you know they're they're regretting a purchase for whatever reason. It's not a legitimate reason to file a dispute. So, um, that is a balance that you're going to have to make as a merchant. But I think there's some some pretty interesting conversations out there. So I'd like to direct everybody to that because I think that, that those two pieces of uh, content should be uh, should be able to answer that question much better than I can. Um, the next question asks, what are the best ATO red flags? And uh, Nate, you, you, I think you had some yeah, I mean, you know, not not to not to beat a dead horse, but you know, look look back at those those different risk indicators, the different KPIs that you know Patty and I have have discussed across those three attack vectors. Um, but you know, at the end of the day, you want to you know to go back to data. You want to you want to understand your business, who your customer, your fraudster is, and you know have a baseline so you can you can see if there's different spikes here and there. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, 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 uh, just like chargeback management, you know, it can be a really manual process. And so, um, you know, if you're not using an account takeover solution, uh, you might be doing things, um, you know, retroactively looking at your, your chargebacks. Um, uh, but it can be, it can be very difficult. Okay. Um, how can we be, this person asks, how can we be more proactive in preventing fraudsters from opening an account with a fraudulent card? Um, so this sort of sounds a little bit like the Franken fraud thing. Patty, did you have did you have a way to answer this question? Yeah, actually I had, I mean, we've gone over a few things. I had some some additions that um that might be things that people aren't aware of um and things that I've seen before um to, to add to your key risk indicators. And that's like the dormant accounts. You don't necessarily want to trust an account that's, uh, you know, it hasn't been active in six months or more. 
And I say that because uh, oftentimes uh, the fraudsters will use credential stuffing techniques to uh, create new accounts using stolen the stolen credentials. And then either uh, after, as I mentioned, six months or more, they may use them themselves because they know the, the um, email and password to get in and use other stolen uh, credit cards that may or may not be associated, so similar to Frankenfraud, or they may actually sell the uh, information, the access of email, user ID, and password on the underground markets. And um, this is all in hopes that the merchant will trust these accounts because they've been on their platform for a period of time. Uh, another one is um, just fraud rings using single family home addresses and they'll create uh, multiple accounts um, using uh, multiple user IDs or emails uh, and, and phone numbers. And then uh, the one that's probably known by everybody is um, shipping orders that uh, are requesting next day or overnight uh, shipping. So, I mean, those are just some things, again, you know, if you have your benchmarks and you can add those risk indicators to them, um, those would be something you can take a look at as well. Okay. Um, and then this, this question sort of um, tied into that COVID-19, I assume, are the banks gonna loosen up chargeback rules for a short period to allow um, for desperate customers, chargeback behavior. And so I actually don't know, this is an interesting conversation too, because um, this was something that came up. I hate to keep referring back to the um, other webinar, but um, it was something that came up and we don't have any um, insight. We haven't heard anything. Um, we have, you know, people, one of, one of our main guys used to work at Visa. So we have relationships over there, but we, we don't have any insider information at this point, or at least at least I don't currently. Um, and we didn't at the time of the last webinar. Um, but I don't know actually in reading the question whether you mean loosen up for the merchant because they're gonna be dealing with more chargebacks or loosen up for the consumer so that you know maybe they're gonna allow them to file chargebacks without having a super good reason just because you know everybody's hurting out there. So I, I, I actually don't know what, what the position the banks are gonna take on this. Um, I think they're kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place and probably it just depends on the bank, right? So the issuing banks are probably going to, they may, may be more lenient with accepting chargebacks, um, especially with all the, the travel things going on. I mean, that, you know, they're, 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 the person that they're serving is their customer um, and then acquiring banks may be more willing to, to, you know, fight on your behalf. So if you compile a uh, legitimate case, the, the, your bank may, may represent it uh, uh, back through the uh, through the system to the acquiring bank. But this is all speculation. I don't have a really good answer here. So, um, but I thought I would address the question. The next question was, how can we dispute um, chargebacks with fraud reason efficiently? And this is good. I like this question because this means that um, this person sort of understands one of the fundamental things that we, we try to communicate in these webinars is that um, reason codes are not good indicators of why a chargeback happened. They are an, an indicator, but they are not the best indicator of why chargebacks happen. Um, and so we don't usually get into, you know, providing specific evidence or specific information to help you win your disputes. Um, that's something that we do as a service. So so a lot of that stuff is not 
things that we would share publicly, but just generally from a 10,000 foot view. Um, I think the, the important concept maybe to understand here is even though we say that reason codes aren't good indicators of why a chargeback happened, reason codes are good indicators of how you should dispute a chargeback. So that is to say, if it's a customer dispute, if, if you know it's not um, an issue of criminal fraud, your goal should still be to prove that it isn't legitimately criminal fraud. Um, and there's a variety of ways that you can do that. Um, there's a, you know, we've written some articles on um, different instances of compelling evidence and, and what that could, could look like. But really, you just have to prove that the customer is who they say they, they were. Um, unfortunately, delivery confirmation is often not enough. Um, but um, there are some other indicators that if you, you know, look through their account, um, you know, especially if they're a return customer, um, if you have any evidence of interactions with the customer, especially with your customer service department, things like that, um, those tend to be real valuable when you're when you're trying to establish that that they are that it is actually the customer that made the purchase. Um, uh, Ren, I think we're getting towards the end. I think we have a couple more, so we'll go two more. Um, this next one is, what precautions can online merchants take to prevent account takeover? ATO is account takeover, by the way, um, just in case anybody hasn't picked that up yet. And cross-exposure of their clients' other relationships. Um, and the examples that they gave are other merchants, email accounts, uh, telco, banking, things like that. Um, Nate, did you, did you want to start this off, or Patty, did you have a... Some, some sure, I mean, that, that's a very definitely a thoughtful question. Um, you know, and this kind of goes back to the messaging that you would send your customers, you know, notifying them that their, their credentials have been exposed. Um, we do have a couple, a recent piece of collateral that, you know, would, should be a pretty good tool for you guys um, that, you know, has some language that will help you, you know, encourage them to choose strong, unique passwords and protect other accounts that share that login information, et cetera. And, and um, you know, you, you can, you can kind of go from there that way. Uh, yeah. You know, you're, you're helping your peers out and curb some curbing some of their risk too, that um, is tied back to vampant password reuse. Um, Patty, any, anything you want to add to that? I think that that's probably the most uh, applicable one, especially if you're you're looking to um, help the, the client protect themselves as well as other business. And it is be a very thoughtful question. Um, you know, it, it's really everybody's responsibility to help one another. And uh, by letting the customer know that they have a problem with their password, um, reuse it it is really helping everybody yeah yeah i think i think i think by the time that there's a there's an account takeover um, you know the the passwords are already compromised um you know so they, they know the password and the login and credentials and so that's that's usually what they would take to to you know the other accounts the telco and the banking and things like that but um i mean is it is it ever i, I would imagine now most merchants are protecting things like credit card numbers and social security numbers and any sort of identifiable information within their system right so so if if a if a person gets access to an account um, and, and maybe I'm wrong about this like they typically don't get to see the entire credit card number that's stored in that account and they don't get to see you know sort of sensitive information they, they would not typically have access to information that they could then use to to 
you know, wreak havoc elsewhere. Am, am I am I wrong in that? Am I optimistic in that assumption, or is that generally? No, no. I think you're. I think you're right. You know, I, I, there is a good chunk, maybe a majority of, um, you know, of e-commerce websites or uh, really any companies that are going to mask credit card and and some of the PII. Um, but that's you know definitely not stopping the other nefarious use cases in there. Um, there's there's lots of uh, loyalty and um, um, you know different issues that can come around that, but there's still tons of transactions and different um, different things that uh, that fraudsters can do when they get into your account. Right, even if it's only for you know using uh, the baseline information like name, address, and phone number to um, you know launch phishing attacks to get more information, uh, and as a part of um, trying to infect the machines uh, that the people are working on, the, the PCs and and whatnot. So it's it's amazing how creative they can they can get, and um, that along with social engineering, some of the information that they they gather to build out that profile uh, just takes a little bit, and they can go a long way especially in today's climate, you know? So if they have a little bit of information to go to the phishing campaign, then, you know, they might be able to give you a call to the number online and say, hey, did you know that rather than waiting three weeks for your check, we can do a direct deposit into your account right now. Uh, we have the first four digits. Can you just confirm the final eight, you know? Yeah. Um, so, you know, it becomes, becomes pretty easy just to have, uh, you know, once once you're in. Okay. All right. Well, that that was it. That was the last question that was asked. So we made it through. We we did it. Um, I went back to the original slide. It's got everybody's contact information. So if you have a question about anything that was discussed today, or would like uh, more information about either the Chargebacks 911 or Spy Cloud, then feel free to jot down um, one of our email addresses. Reach out to us, and then if we're not the right person, we'll make sure that we put you in touch with the right person to help you out. Um, so thank you, uh, Nate and Patty, for joining us today. Um, glad glad this went off uh, relatively hitch-free. Um, we hope everybody stays safe, and um, we'll see you guys next time. Thanks a lot, Jared. Thanks, Chargebacks 911. Have a great day, everyone. Yeah, Bye. thank you. Bye-bye.